Hello everybody, my name is Ali Ansari and I am the CEO and co-founder of the debate coaching company online called ActDebate. And ActDebate strives to provide you with individualized, specific coaching that focuses on making sure that you implement skills that you need in the debate round rather than just giving you lectures and giving you content and giving you all the information possible. We believe that's important, but what's more important is you being able to execute those strategies. And we help you develop real life advocacy skills. But today is our first YouTube video and I'm super pumped about it because we're gonna be talking about one of the basic beginner uh, things to know the structure of OCDL cases. And I'm gonna be splitting this video up into two portions. Part one would be argumentation, and part two is case structure. So let's analyze what people do in the real world when it comes to developing arguments, right? You'll often hear cl claims like, such as people in America, people in America should not own guns. This is a claim. It is not supported by any reasoning nor any evidence. But the impact of this statement or the implication of this statement is that if this statement is true, then we should pass a policy to get rid of guns. That would be the impact or implication. So no reasoning or evidence, but the impact or implication of this statement being true is that we should pass a policy to get rid of guns, right? I'll give you another example and I'll see what you think the impact is. So the claim is the United States federal government or USFG for short, should us stop using the death penalty. So I'll give you a second, think about what is there reasoning or evidence for this claim and if, and you can either answer yes or no to that, then on the impact or implication, what is the implication of that argument being true? Or what do we do next? I'll give you a few seconds. All right, so is there reasoning or evidence? No. This is a claim that I have asserted, but there's no logic or proof to back it up. So we would say there is no reasoning or evidence. And the impact or implication, what we should do with this claim is we should get rid of the death penalty. Right, notice how both of these transform from moral statements to actual policy decisions. Let me explain. If I say people in America should not own guns, that's just saying uh, that there's a moral obligation not to do so, that there are reasons for us to not do so. But that is a moral decision that isn't related with the direct passing of legislation. But if I prove this statement to be true, the obvious follow-up is to pass a policy that is consistent with this, that gets rid of guns. Similarly with the death penalty, if we say the United, if we prove that the United States federal government 
should stop using the death penalty, the impact or the implication of this argument is that we should get rid of the death penalty, right? That is basically uh, how arguments work in the real world or how you may see them on the news, right? People say what you should or shouldn't do. But in debate, we are focused on developing these, fleshing these statements out into nuanced, specific um, argumentation and clash over different areas of these topics. So debate is focused on creating a non-arbitrary way to decide what we need to do. And this non-arbitrary way is going through a process of argumentation, going having the proposition and the opposition clash with each other about opposing viewpoints on why a policy, on why a moral decision may be good or bad, and if so, whether we should have passed a policy or not. Now, before I get into part two, there's, I think part one is solid for now. I think we've explained how argumentation works in the real world and what debate is focused on. Debate is focused on creating a non-arbitrary way to decide what we need to do. And this is why we created specific case structures. That leads me into part two, case structures. But before that, there's a little bit of a context I need to establish. Imagine if I was teaching you biology. I'm not qualified to do so at all, but if I was, I would probably teach you about things like evolution, genetics, uh, the immune system, organ systems, tissues, B cells, T cells. What you'll notice with all of these is that these are context-specific words that have meaning within the field of biology. Similarly, debate has created its own context-specific words or jargon to help clarify certain arguments or help clarify how debate works. And it's a little frustrating because you do have to get adjusted to the jargon, but it will all inevitably make sense and it will actually clear up some confusing portions of how to organize arguments how to or how to engage in the debate. So let's, I, I think that a pretty good structure of a case consists of three parts. One, the burdens, two, the relevant definitions, and three, the offense or the assertion. And actually, while I'm at it, this isn't a necessary part, but it definitely helps. It's the introduction. So we're actually gonna alter this just as we go because I think it's important to include it. It's not necessarily, and if we're actually going all the way here, I think we should add one more. Nope, oh, that is not a neat. Conclusion. Introduction and conclusion. And I'll explain what both of those are. But these, the introduction and conclusion aren't necessarily necessary for you to win the round, but they've become established in the OZDL is very, very important for ethos. So let's first talk about your introduction. Your introduction is basically your way of hooking the judge in, of making this debate interesting. Imagine you're talking to somebody who literally has no interest in politics whatsoever. They don't want to be hearing your case structure or 
your burdens or your relevant definitions, whatever. You need some type of hook to get them engaged for a little bit. And that hook is what we call the introduction, right? And that introduction can be a quote, it could be statistics, it could be an uh, anecdote, or it could be a hypothetical situation. Uh, these are all examples of different types of introductions that we would use. And the point is to grab your judge, uh, judge's attention, right? That is the point of the introduction. This usually takes about 30, 15 to 30 seconds. It doesn't need to take too long. Then we get onto the burdens. And I'm going to talk about monopoly for a little bit. One burden that you need, one thing that you need to do in order to win in monopoly is to bankrupt your opponent. We can say that's a win condition uh, in monopoly, or it's a burden for winning monopoly, right? Your burden is to bankrupt your opponent. That is how you win. We've also created these sort of burden structures in debate as well. So the burden for each team explain what each team has to do to win the debate. So, for ex so there are two sides, the proposition and the opposition. The proposition, uh, the proposition's burden is to prove that the resolution is true because they're proposing the resolution. The opposition, uh, I'll let you take a guess. What does the opposition do? It should take three seconds. Okay, if the proposition needs to prove the resolution true, it should follow that the negative needs to prove the resolution false or show the resolution is false, right? These are your burdens. As a proposition, you need to prove that the resolution is true. And as the opposition, you need to prove that the resolution is false. Now the question is, this is generic. Right? Why is this a part of the case? It just seems to be general knowledge. That is true. But lots of advanced debaters will come up with a series of burdens that show that the resolution is true. So we've established that burdens explain what each team has to do to win the debate. And the proposition's burden is to show that the resolution is true. But that's pretty wide, right? We can think, well, what burdens are on the proposition to show that the resolution is true? What burden? And that's, it basically forms somewhat of a funnel, right? Burdens in general explain what each team needs to do to win the debate. But once the proposition shows that they need to prove the resolution true, they also need to establish how they're going to prove the resolution true. So you need second layer burdens to prove this. This might seem confusing, so I'll give you an example. Imagine the topic is, topic, the United States should increase the minimum wage to $15. And I'll actually put it down here. So, Given this, the burden of the burden of the proposition is to show that increasing the minimum wage to 
you $15 is net beneficial. That's the burden of the proposition, right? Because if they show it's net beneficial, that would prove that the United States should increase the minimum wage. The burden of the opposition is to show that increasing the minimum wage to $15 is net harmful. But there may be specific, but there may be even more specific burdens, right? How do you prove that increasing the minimum wage to $15 is net beneficial? Well, the minimum wage affects a lot of things. On a microeconomic level, it affects businesses and individuals. But on a macroeconomic level, it may affect the economy as a whole and international trade. So you could say uh, bur some burdens may be that you should prove that. So burden, the second layer burden is that on a microeconomic level, increasing the minimum wage helps individual businesses and households, right? And then your second layer burden, number two, is on a macroeconomic level, increasing the minimum wage uh, helps uh, the economic growth and international trade. Actually, we'll just say economic growth. We typically don't say second layer burden, uh, but that's just my terminology for explaining to you and clarifying that these are basically burdens for your burden. They're win conditions. They're conditions that you need to meet in order to prove that burden, that increasing the minimum wage is net beneficial. So the way we would, how would we say this in a round, in an actual round? Well, we would say, judge, Given that we need to prove that increasing the minimum wage to $15 is net beneficial, we believe that there are two burdens on the proposition. First, on a microeconomic level, the proposition will prove to you that increasing the minimum wage helps individual businesses and firms and households. But also on a macroeconomic level, which will be our second burden, increasing the minimum wage helps economic growth of the nation. And why is this beneficial? Well, it's benef actually, I'll talk about that after the opposition. So we established that if the proposition needs to show that the resolution is true, the opposition needs to show the resolution is false. So the opposition has two choices. Either one, they can prove that it's net harmful. So there are two ways of opposing the resolution. Either one, they prove that the proposition does not meet their burden or burdens, right? So they would say, judge, we will prove to you in this debate that the proposition does not meet their burden, that they hurt people both on a microeconomic level and on a macroeconomic level. And this would basically be accepting the proposition's burden structure. But what they could also do is they could also introduce new burdens, right? So maybe they think 
No, I don't think the microeconomic and macroeconomic layer is what the proposition needs to do to prove that the United States should increase the minimum wage to $15. I think rather what they may need to do is perhaps they need to show that increasing the minimum wage uh, is key to electing a certain candidate for office. Now, this is a different burden structure. Rather than proving that the proposition didn't meet their burdens, they introduced new burdens. But let's, let's ask ourselves this. Is this really the point of the topic? No, this is, not, this is tangentially related. So what that shows you is that there can be a debate over the burdens. And that's huge. And we'll get into that in a future video. The point of this that I want to show you is that with burdens, burdens show what each team has to do to win the debate. Proposition needs to show that the resolution is true, and opposition needs to show that the resolution is false. But then within that, within proving the resolution true or false, there are different burdens that you can win condition that you can set up for yourself to prove the resolution true. If you have any questions, feel free to go back and maybe listen a second time because really listening a second time could help out a lot or just relearning the ideas. But next, on part C, the relevant definitions. So, topic, let's use the same one. The United States should increase the minimum wage to $15. Do I need to define what $15 is? No. Do I need to define what the is? No. But maybe it's beneficial to define the relevant definition of minimum wage. What is a minimum wage? Is it that every single person is paid $15 now? Or is it that every single person is, uh, is paid under $15? What does it mean? Or how does it differ from things like living wages uh, or other policies that have been proposed? Right, That might be something that you want to clarify in order for the judge to uh, truly understand your position. Right Now this isn't as complicated a topic and minimum wage may be easier to understand for judges. But let's say you're debating something like the United States should not provide military aid to authoritarian regimes. Well, what are authoritarian regimes? What is military aid and what forms does it come in, right? Those are definitely relevant definitions that you want to clarify. But now what we're doing is we're going to the meat of the case. We're going to part D, which is the offense. And offense is usually called assertions. So let's go to this topic again. The United States should increase the minimum wage to $15. You can probably think of a bunch of reasons why increasing the minimum wage would be helpful. And each of those reasons is an assertion. So the assertion is an independent reason why the topic is true or false, depending on whether you're proposing or opposing the resolution. So, for example, we could say um, increasing the minimum wage uh, decreases poverty. That could be an example. Right? And that's just a reason why the topic 
is true reasons why we would want to increase the minimum wage. Now note that this means that you can have numerous assertions, but that's not going to win you the debate. Having 10 assertions isn't going to win you the debate because what really matters is the best assertion. The best assertion always wins. It's never about how much offense you have. It's about how good your evidence quality is, how good your offense is, right? So I want to make that very clear. It is not quantity of assertions that matters. It is quality of assertions. If I have 10 assertions that talk about why the Simpsons are funny, sure, I have more assertions, but that doesn't translate into me proving that the topic is true or false. The, the things that prove the topic true or false are the best assertions, not just any random assertion. I want to make that really clear for you, that you should be prioritizing the quality over the quantity of uh, assertions that you have. Next, we have the reasoning. And the reasoning is pretty much what it sounds like, honestly. It's the reasoning for why the affirmative is true. It is a logical chain that explains the assertion. So in this example, I my assertion is that increasing the minimum wage decreases poverty, right? But what's the reasoning behind that assertion? Well, I could say increasing the minimum wage means that workers are paid more, which means that they rise in financial status, which means that they get out of poverty, which to some extent is true, right? If you're paid more, you're more likely to get out of poverty than if you're paid less or if you're paid the same. So yes, it, can re it could reduce poverty. This seems like a logical chain of reasoning, right? But there's a third part to this, and it's very important. It's the evidence. The evidence is basically a proof of your reasoning being true. So your reasoning and evidence are inextricably tied together. Your evidence backs up your reasoning. Your evidence is a proof of your reasoning being true. So in this example, we would want to ask ourselves, well, how, so how do we indicate with evidence that the reasoning is true? So maybe there are studies that prove that uh, there's a decrease in poverty with an increase in the minimum wage. Or maybe there are polls of different people in different industries who all said that they got out of poverty. Or maybe you could take the testimony of a uh, subject matter expert on the minimum wage. These are all pieces of evidence that offer proof of your reasoning being true. Now, don't immediately take that as the reasoning isn't important. That is not true whatsoever. The reasoning is very important because it explains why your evidence is true, right? So it kind of is a, a, a cycle. Your evidence backs up your reasoning, but your reasoning backs up your evidence, right? So if I cite a 2012 study by the Congressional Budget Office that indicates 
a 5% increase in the minimum wage decreases poverty by 3%, right? So this evidence would back up my reasoning that, uh, that would back up that logical chain above. But my reasoning would explain this statistic. My reasoning would say, look, the Congressional Budget Office found the statistic because of the reason that I gave you, that when workers are paid more, they rise in financial status, which means that they get out of poverty, which is a preset threshold that is uh, determined by the federal government, right? So that kind of works in a cyclical relationship. Uh, the reasoning backs up the evidence, and the evidence backs up the reasoning. The reasoning is a theoretical justification for your evidence being true, and your evidence provides a practical justification for your reasoning being true. So let's write that out. Uh, your reasoning provides a theoretical justification for your evidence being true. Your evidence provides a practical justification for your reasoning being true. And I know the word practical means many different things, but think, think of it as, in this context, think of it as a real-life proof. That is really the best word I can use. It's not just studies, because there could also be polls, or there could be, uh, well, there's studies, there's polls, there's uh, testimonies by different people. If you're trying to say that uh, X person is bad, it might be good to have evidence of a character witness testifying to that person's bad character, right? So there are many different things, but it's a practical justification. It is the real world backing up your reasoning, right? The evidence shows your reasoning playing out in the real world. Let's say that. The evidence shows your reasoning uh, playing out in the real world. I think that might be a easier way to understand this concept. So, once we have the evidence, there's still one more thing left, and that's the impact. Now, I'm going to tie this back up to what I said earlier. Remember how I said, if I prove this claim, that people in America should not own guns, then the impact, or the implication, or what do we do from there? The answer to that question is, we should pass a policy to get rid of guns. Now, let's take this argument. I have said that increasing the minimum wage decreases poverty. Now, you need to be asking yourself, what is the impact of this? What is the implication of this argument? And what you want to be saying isn't just, here's an example of what not to do. Decreasing poverty is good because poverty is bad. Not only is this sentence circular in logic, but it also doesn't give me an impact. It also doesn't explain to me why poverty is bad. I know that this, is, this seems like extremely common sense, and it is. But you should provide the judge as vivid a description of possible, as possible of why uh, poverty is bad. So example of what to do could be poverty, one, uh, worsens living conditions for families, 
for hundreds of thousands of families into slows economic growth. Notice how this is different from my first example. My first example just asserted that decreasing poverty is good because poverty is bad. It didn't provide me an impact of why my assertion, where is my assertion, of why my assertion is important. And that's what it is. Why is your assertion important? And that is key. You need to provide another level of justification for why your assertion is true. And it's even better when it's common sense because the judge is more likely to follow along with it, right? But you still need to provide that final justification. So the conclusion, right? The conclusion is really important because it basically, it gives a little bottom button to your speech per se. Imagine this is like the top bun, maybe some lettuce, some cheese, the patty, which is the offense for the assertions, this should provide a bottom button. It's for ethos purposes to make the to make the speech really close out. And this could be a summary of your offense. This could be another quote. It could be another anecdote. It could be a witty phrase. It could really be anything you want. Anything with persuasive appeal that closes out your speech would be sufficient to for your conclusion. So here's what we've done for today. Well, we've done a lot. If you're a beginner, you have successfully introduced yourself to Orange County Debate League of OC cases. We first talked about what people commonly do when they're trying to make arguments. Then we said what debate aims to do and how we do it with a case structure. Then we went through the five parts of the case, introduction, burdens, relevant, definitions, offense, and conclusion. And now I'm going to give you a little homework assignment if you want to check up your progress. So a good way to see if you're understanding this AREI is I would actually search up this very sentence, increasing the minimum wage decreases poverty, and just put that in Google. You should find lots of articles. Click on some random article on the first page, and I would try to make your own AREI using just that article, right? And I wouldn't, and try not to look at my reasoning, because my reasoning, if you just copy my reasoning, that takes the whole point out of it. And don't copy my impact either, right? But try to use that article to construct your own AREI with the assertion given. Because at the end, we see A-R-E-I. This is the A-R-E-I model. And this is what OCDL debaters refer to, the, the phrase that OCDL debaters use when they're referring to their argument structure. A-R-E-I. So that is it for today. If you have any questions at all, please comment them in the, in, in the comments below. And I look forward to seeing you soon in our next video. Thank you.